Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any info on our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. So we're working our way through the book of Revelation. We're doing a, a chapter a week, and, and uh, today we're going to do chapter 8, which is the first four of the trumpet judgments. I'm going to start in verse 1 here. By the way, some of you might be coming into this um, uh, message, and you might be wondering to yourselves, uh, you know, you're coming in here with all kinds of stuff from the week and all kinds of, of, of problems and, and things in your life. And you might wonder, how on earth is Revelation 8 going to be uh, applicable to my life today? And uh, one of the beauties of the book of Revelation is, first of all, it gives us a big picture. It gives us a big picture view that gives us hope for the future, which is extremely practical in our day-to-day lives. But secondly, uh, these last couple of months as I've been really digging in and studying and working through the book of Revelation, realizing again how pastoral Rev- the book of Revelation is. And even this chapter 8, which many Christians have read for centuries and not seen anything pastoral in it at all, I really think there's a pastoral encouragement and very practical things which we're going to get to uh, towards the end of this message. But we'll start in verse 1 here. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, okay? And so we remember the backbone of, of the book of Revelation is, is built off these 21 judgments, uh, first, we have the seven seal judgments, which we've worked our way through. And then now we're going to get into the seven trumpet judgments. And then finally, there are seven bowl judgments. But that's kind of the, the backbone of the narrative in the book of Revelation. So anyway, when the Lamb, that's Jesus, opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Okay, so once the seven seals are off... Finally, the scroll, remember the scroll from chapter five, the scroll is finally open and now, and these trumpets are the beginning of the scroll, okay? And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand, from the hand of the angel. Now, this is just uh, so important uh, each of this series of judgments, it's really, really important. We see this as a huge theme in Revelation. But each of this series, the seven seal judgments, the seven trumpet judgments, and the seven bowl judgments, each starts with a heavenly throne room scene. And this is really important. So right before we, uh, you know, John describes the seal judgments, chapter five, we're in the throne room of God. The lamb, you know, Jesus is, is holding the scroll with the seals. And then we see him opening the seals. Then, and then the seal judgments. And then here, before we see the trumpets, we're in the throne room of God. We saw, see God gathering up the prayers of his saints. We're going to see the same thing before the bold judgments is we're going to see another heavenly scene. This is really important in the book of Revelation. The point is, God is absolutely, utterly sovereign over it all. Okay? Everything that happens. Now, that's going to be really important. We're going to explain some of that in the heart of this message is, uh, but everything that happens, we're going to see some terrible things in the book of Revelation, some devastating things, some catastrophic things uh, that are going to happen in the book of Revelation. But this is all supposed to be an encouragement that God is in control. The first century Christians who are reading this are going, okay, terrible things are happening on the earth, but at least I know God's still in charge. Okay, really important. And the other thing we see in these scenes is over and over again, we see the, the power of prayer. In the fifth seal, we saw the martyrs in heaven praying for justice, and then we see, saw God pouring his wrath out on the earth. Here before the trumpets, we see God gathering up the prayers of his saints. Your prayers are precious. They're absolutely precious. 
No matter how you feel, your feelings aren't always telling you the truth. You sometimes feel like your prayers are not precious or powerful. Your prayers are precious and powerful. God is gathering them up in heaven. He, every time you cry out to him, he's gathering those prayers up in heaven. And then those prayers are making a difference. And we see here, uh, verse 5, Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an, earth, and an earthquake. In other words, our prayers move God to action. So the, the, the trumpet judgments that are to follow, the things that are happening on the earth are not disconnected from our prayers. Not that we're all going to prayer every night. I mean, don't see this as, you know, we're all supposed to be going to prayer every night and say, you know, you know Jesus, blessings on mom and dad and blessings on the kids and blessings on my friends and please bring judgment on the world, okay? It's not that we're praying for judgment every night, but all of our prayers to God for healing, for blessing, for his help, ultimately are piling up in heaven and he wants to come to earth and answer our prayers by coming to earth and defeating death and sin. And so our prayers ultimately end up in heaven and they get poured down on the earth and God says it's time to bring an end to death and disease and sin and the wickedness and and the wicked kingdoms of this this world. And so all of that is connected to our prayers and none of these terrible things we're going to read about in the book of Revelation are outside of God's control. Every single one of them, no matter how catastrophic, no matter how terrible, it only happens in God's timing. It only happens because God allows it. It's all coming out of his throne room, which is really, really important. And so we get into the trumpets. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. So a terrible, terrible storm, catastrophic. And these were thrown upon the earth and a third of the earth was burned up. And a third of the trees were burned up and all green grass was burned up. Now, before we you know, go through all the, the judgments and people start, again, often in Revelation, Christians feel overwhelmed. There's so much imagery. There's so much information. You know, I couldn't remember what was seal four. And I got that mixed up with trumpet three and five and bowl number six. And, and, and the point is not to remember all the information. Okay, the point is not that you have to remember all the information. God is... But John, uh, by the Holy Spirit, is preaching to us some very powerful truths about Jesus, about life, and about the end of, of, uh, of all things when he comes to bring his kingdom to earth. And so I want to just take out the confusion about the information. I want to put up a visual for you, uh, a pattern, because everything in Revelation is a pattern. And then you can kind of forget about all the details and just let uh, God speak to you through, through the message he has for us through these trumpets. But anyway, so here's an overview of this, the seven trumpets. So you're not feeling confused about the information, those of you uh, who go that way. And, there's, and, and, and they're broken down. There's four, and then there's three. We're going to see this next week when we're in chapter nine. The first four judgments, trumpet judgments, go together in chapter eight. And then the second three judgments go together in, in uh, chapter nine. And they're called the three woes. So the first four judgments are on their own. And then right before the, the, the next three, John says, and, and the next three are the three woes, okay? And they're different from each other, okay? The first four trumpet judgments are all uh, disasters of a natural kind, right? We all know there's different causes of suffering here on the earth. Some causes of suffering are natural, things like earthquakes and hurricanes and volcanoes, and droughts, and those sorts of things. And that's what the first four trumpets are, natural events like that, disasters, okay? But then we all know there's suffering that's caused not by weather events and natural disasters. There's suffering that's caused 
by people. There's war and terrorism and violence and those sorts of things. That's what the second, you know, group, the woes are more of that kind of suffering, okay? So the first four trumpets that we're going to look at here in chapter 8 are natural catastrophic events. So the first one is hail and fire, you know, awful, awful storms uh, leading to, you know, massive forest fires and things like that. The second trumpet is a fiery mountain into the sea. Could be a volcano, could be some kind of impact on the earth, I don't know, but it's a natural event, catastrophic. Third one is star falls on the fresh water and the water goes bitter. And then the fourth one is the sun and the moon being dark and losing the light from the sky. All natural events. And when we get into chapter 9, the type of event, the three woes begins. The first event is these locust scorpions, and we'll talk more about that next week that torment people for five months. And then the second one is this massive army or armies that kills a third of mankind. And then the third woe isn't a woe to us. It's God coming back. It's from the perspective of the wicked. If you have rejected Jesus, God's wrath and Jesus coming to earth is a woe. To us, it's a woo. Okay, so there's a woo and there's a woe. All right. But if from the perspective of those who have rejected Jesus, it's a woe. Okay, Jesus coming back to earth. And that's an awful thing for them. But that's okay. So for The first four are the natural. The last three uh, are the other. Now, again, these judgment events are all part of his plan. They are instigated in his timing, and it's his power that is moving him along. And this is supposed to be encouraging for us. See, the thing you have to understand is if you want to know an emotion that you're supposed to have while you're going through the book of Revelation, it is not fear. If you're a believer, it's not supposed to be fear. John did not write this book to those first century Christians to scare them. He wrote it to them specifically to encourage them. Okay? And the fact that God is sovereign, and throughout the book, God's sovereignty is a massive deal. It is central to everything that Revelation is saying. That is supposed to be an encouragement. The first century Christians took it, and they were encouraged. Unfortunately today, many Christians read the book of Revelation, and instead of being encouraged, they're afraid. But the point of this is not okay, all these terrible things are going to happen. Terrible things are already happening around the world. The point of the book is that, yes, terrible things are happening, and there's going to be a final climax of terrible things happening just before Jesus comes back. But don't worry, sheep. That's what Jesus says to his sheep, to his sons and daughters. I'm in control of it all. It's supposed to be a comfort. Now, again, unfortunately, many Christians today, rather than being comforted by, it's like we have a different perspective now in today's day and age than Christians have had for centuries. Instead of being comforted by the fact that God is sovereign over these terrible events, many Christians today uh, almost, it's like they get upset when they think of God being sovereign over these events. Instead of being comforted that God's in control, Christians ask, why? Why would a God, good God allow these things to happen? Why? Why would a good God allow? I mean, I personally know people who have left the Christian faith. They were believers. They were serving. They were doing all kinds of stuff. They left the faith uh, because, you know, they looked, in, they looked in the news and they said, like, well, how can God allow this kind of thing? How can God allow droughts where children are suffering and people that go through this stuff? And I see that with Christians as well. I see them saying, how can God allow me to go through what I'm going through? How could God allow my loved one to go what they're going through. And so increasingly what I see is rather than Christians being encouraged by the fact that God's sovereign even over disasters and terrible things, I see Christians asking this question and going, rather than being comforted, they're, uh, they're upset at God. How can you allow this? How can you allow me to go through this? 
And of course, it's not bad to question. It's not bad to ask God questions. But at a certain point, uh, if we can't trust him, we will get bitter. Now, the interesting thing is, and I keep saying this, and, and this is something I really want to get across today in this message, is the Bible does not tell us why. I mean, there's a few things in here. There's different whys and apologetics and messages. We can touch on, you know, why does God allow suffering in the world? And there's different ways. But ultimately, the Bible does not tell us why God allows evil on the earth. However, the Bible does give us a narrative that helps us to make sense of evil and that gives us hope to get us through to the end. And someday we're going to get an answer to the whys. And I want to show you that very briefly. It's very important, I think, that we understand the storyline of the Bible and the narrative the Bible gives us. Because the Bible does not tell us, you know, when someone loses a loved one or goes through uh, intense sickness or whatever it is, and they go, why would God allow me to go through this? And the Bible does not give you a verse. This is why. The book of Job is basically the Bible wrestling with the problem of evil. And in the end, it just says, God loves you. And he's big, and you don't know all the reasons why, but you can trust them. That's, about, that's kind of the answer that we get. But, however, the Bible does give us a narrative that helps us make sense of it in the meantime, and that gives us hope for the future. Here's the narrative. Here's what the Bible tells us about evil, and it's so important we have this. I'm just going to put it all on a screen. And it's so important that we have an, uh, an understanding of, of the Bible's narrative of evil. Here's what the Bible tells us about evil and suffering. Number one, the Bible tells us, that human beings do evil because of our own choices. And this is, this is right from the beginning of Genesis. Genesis 2 and 3 tells us God made the earth good. There's a tree in the garden. He tells them not to eat of it. He does not make Adam and Eve do evil. Adam and Eve choose to do evil. And throughout the rest of the scriptures, that's what we see. God is not the author of evil. People do it. Now someone says, why did he put the tree there? Why did he allow them to do sin? That the Bible doesn't tell us. It just tells us we sin because we choose to. And we don't need the Bible even to tell us that. We know it in our own lives. Isn't it true? We mess up. Why do we mess up? I'd love to blame someone else. But the fact of the matter is, I do bad things because I choose to do bad things. And that is a major, that is, God is not the author of evil. People are the author of evil. Another thing the Bible tells us in this narrative is it says, there is a real be being named Satan, and he is powerful. He actually exists. And he is a major cause of evil in the world. He exasperates the evil that humans do. He motivates, he deceives, but he's a major cause of evil. Now, someone asks, well, why does God let him run loose? Why doesn't he lock him up? The Bible doesn't tell us why. It just tells us someday he will lock him up. So this is a narrative. The Bible is giving us explanations. It's not giving us all the whys we want. But it does give us a narrative for what's happening. And then thirdly, the Bible tells us that God doesn't shield us from all pain. And of course, we know that because we experience pain. And you say, well, why doesn't he shield us from pain? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us that either. But it does give us some other things that are extremely helpful and, and that we need. First of all, the Bible tells us that God is not a distant God. No, he doesn't shield us from all pain. Someday we'll find out maybe why. But in the meantime, it does tell us that he has entered into our pain. He cares about us so much that he came down and was born as a baby and lived a fully human life and then died on a cross for us. When a parent loses a child and says, why, God, did you allow this? God didn't shield you from that pain, but he knows that pain because he gave his son for us. 
And when you suffer physical pain, he knows what that feels too because Jesus was on the cross, nailed there, and he did actually die, and he did suffer physical pain. It doesn't tell us why he doesn't shield us from all the pain now, but we do know that he went with, he empathizes with us. Second of all, the Bible tells us that he redeems our pain. In other words, he will turn it all for good somehow. And lastly, the Bible gives us hope that one day he will end all pain. So it doesn't give us all the whys we want, but it gives us a narrative that in the meantime, I can say, okay, I don't know all the whys, but one thing I do know, it's not him that's making people do evil. I know Satan's causing evil. I'm, I'm causing evil. People are causing evil. And also I know that God feels my pain with me. I know he's going to redeem it. I know someday he's going to end it. And that's enough for me now. I don't have the answer to why, but that's enough for me to get through it. Now, again, for some people, that still isn't enough. Like I said before, I personally know people who have walked away because they said a good God should shield us from pain. And they look at disasters around the world and they say a good God could not allow things like slavery to happen. A good God, and again, the Bible says he doesn't make slavery happen, he hates it. But some people complain, they say he wouldn't let it happen. He wouldn't let terrible things be done to women and children. He wouldn't let starvation happen. A good God wouldn't do that. And I know people who have left the faith over that. And I think it's an important question that we talk about and answer here today. Because as we go through the book of Revelation, we're going to be confronted over and over and over again with disaster and chaos and catastrophe. How can a good God be sovereign over all of that? How can all of that stuff, his throne room be above it, and these trumpet judgments and bowl judgments be devastating the earth? How can a good God be good in the midst of all that? Well, as I said before, first of all, the Bible doesn't give us a question, an answer to the question why. So you might sit there and you might say, well, then that's it. I'm out of here. You know, I think there's actually a better way to answer the question, though, and that is that we don't have to give an answer to the question Why? We have to actually look at what are the alternatives. You know, when an atheist comes to you and says, I don't believe in, in God because how could a good God allow this? And they just, all they have to do is open up the newspaper from today and show you a whole bunch of horrible things every day that are happening around the world. When an atheist says that to you, you don't actually have to have an answer to the question why. What you need to do is answer with another question, and that is, do you have a better alternative? I don't have all the answers. I admit that. And the Bible, it's really above our pay grade. Someday God will tell us. But right now, the Bible says, this is enough for you now. You, I, you have hope. You know it will be redeemed. I'm not giving you all the whys. The atheist says, if I don't have whys, I'm leaving. Okay, the question to you is, do you have a better alternative? And I want to take a few moments here in this message now to look at what are the alternatives. Is there a better alternative to the fact that God is sovereign even over bad things? Well, what's the first alternative? The first alternative is to become an atheist and to say there is no God. Okay? Now, the atheist says, see, now I don't have a problem of evil because you have a problem because God is good, so how can there be evil? But actually, did you know that the atheist has just as big a problem, if not bigger? So now you ask the atheist, well, you still have to deal with the problem of evil because there's evil out there. How does an atheist explain the problem of evil? Well, let's give, us, give it a shot, shall we? We go back far enough in time and you're an atheist. We go back, 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 back. We go back before time. So now we're at a time when there is no time. We can't even imagine such a thing. But there, in that no time, there was no thing. There was nothing. 
And when I say nothing, I don't mean a jar with nothing in it because a jar is something. What I mean is there was nothing anywhere. In fact, it's ridiculous to speak of anywhere because there was no place. There was nothing. And then that nothing at no time, because there was no time, that nothing at no time exploded for no reason into something. Okay? Now, already that right there takes a lot of faith to believe. But let's follow it through. How does an atheist explain the problem of evil? If there is no God, then nothing exploded into something for no reason at no time. And this nothingness that exploded into something formed itself into planets and stars and all kinds of things. And one of the planets that formed is what we now call Earth, and we're here. And so Earth was formed, and it was full of metals and elements and lava and all this sort of stuff. Everything you'll notice there is dead. But then, suddenly, out of nowhere again, there was, again, something magical. Lightning struck. Many lightnings struck. Something happened, and boom, dead things became alive, and you had life on the Earth. Again, there's no scientific explanation for this. You can't scientifically explain something from nothing. You can't scientifically explain life from non-life. Now this life begins to grow. It begins to morph over many years and evolve. And you have many, many different kinds of animals. Again, I'm speaking again from atheist perspective here. And all of this stuff is growing and evolving. And one of the animals that evolves is what we are humans. But again, if everything came from nothing and there is no God and, every, and everything came from nothing that exploded at no time for no reason into what we have today, then all we are is animals, okay? So now the question is, if all we are is animals, why are we complaining about the problem of evil? Think about that. When you watch a nature video, and I've watched, you know, maybe too many in my life with my children. I mean, did you, I don't know if any of you saw Disney made, was making all those nature videos for a while, those stories, and, uh, and they had that lion one. I'm not talking about the Lion King, okay? That one's not a true story, just in case you were wondering. But anyway, <laughs> but they made that one about the lions. I don't know if any of you watched a couple years ago. My kids and I watched it. We really enjoyed it. And it's all just brutal violence. I mean, they follow these, these male lions that go around in a pack, and they take over other, you know, tr- what do you call tribes, packs, prides, of lions, and when they take over another pride of lion, you know what they do? They kill all the babies. I mean, it's, it's gruesome. It's awful. They, it's, it's killing. It's murder. It's infanticide. It's all this terrible stuff. And you know what? People watch these nature videos, and nobody writes op-ed columns in the newspapers going, the problem of evil. They killed babies. It's so horrible. Nobody writes anything about that in the animal kingdom. All they say is, it's survival of the fittest. Isn't that true? I mean, Disney made another one uh, about monkeys. It should be rated R. Like, I'm serious. The, the, the sexual infidelities and abuse and violence and stuff that monkeys do, wow, okay? You watch that and you're like, this is disturbing. But nobody says, oh my goodness, the problem of evil. Have you seen what monkeys do to each other? It's like horrible. And they're crying about the problem of evil. Nobody says that. They say, it's instinct. It's survival of the fittest. When animals starve, nobody goes, oh, the problem of evil. They say, okay, the weak had to be weeded out so there'd be more resources for the strong. Isn't that what they say? Nobody complains. The animal kingdom doesn't complain about, about evil. I mean, I've said before, but I mean, dolphins, they look so cute. Some of the terrible things they do to each other. It's just awful. You can't even hardly speak of it. And these things are evil, but they're not evil because they're animals. They're animals. If all we are is animals that just 
accidentally came to be. We're smarter than the other ones, sure. But of all we are as animals, there's no moral difference. There is no evil. When people starve around the world, that's actually survival of the fittest. That just means there's more resources for the rest of us. Now, again, just in case someone wants to take a clip of this and put it on YouTube, I care about it, okay? I'm just arguing if there is no God... There's no reason to argue about these things. Does that make sense? There's no reason to argue that it's evil. The moment you call any of those things evil, you actually prove that you believe in God because if there is no God, there is no evil. Let me show you five quotes from um, famous atheist thinkers about evil. This is what Richard Dawkins says. Of course, we have to start with him. The universe has no design, no purpose, no evil, and no good Nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. So if you look around at the news and you say that's evil, you're not an atheist. You can't be an atheist and believe in evil. Because all we are as humans is a sack of skin and bones and molecules and atoms. If we die, we die. Sure, we might have some feelings, but all those are is chemicals in our brain. There is no evil or good. Here's what atheist philosopher Richard Taylor said. To say that something is wrong because it is forbidden by God is perfectly understandable to anyone who believes in a law-giving God. But to say that something is wrong even though no God exists to forbid it is not understandable. What he's saying is if you're an atheist, you have no philosophical right to call something right or wrong or evil or good. The concept of moral obligation is unintelligible apart from the idea of God. The words remain, but their meaning is gone. Famous atheist professor William Provine said this, No inherent moral or ethical laws exist, nor are there any absolute guiding principles for human society. The universe cares nothing for us, and we have no ultimate meaning in life. Boy, that's a great alternative to God being sovereign, isn't it? I mean, think about this. There is no evil or good. I mean, we could all say here, Adolf Hitler is evil. We know he's evil. But if you're an atheist... You say, well, he is evil. We just know he's evil. I don't need there to be a God to know Adolf Hitler is evil. How do you know Adolf Hitler is evil if there is no God? Because if Adolf Hitler was here right now, he would say it isn't evil. And he could have millions, and in World War II, he had millions of Germans on his side. And they would say, no, what we're doing, we're actually helping evolution along. We're getting rid of the weak so there'll be more resources for the strong. They actually took naturalism and evolution to its natural conclusion. That's what they did. They said, we're actually helping the human race. So you would say you're wrong. Well, how do you know they're wrong? Well, I just know they're wrong. I feel that they're wrong. Yeah, but they feel you're wrong. When ISIS terrorists go and blow people up and commit genocide, you say, I know that's evil, but how do you know it's evil? If there's no God, that's just a feeling. And they have a different feeling. Their feeling is you're wrong. So who's right? I just know we're right because I feel. Yeah, but (laughs) there's lots of people that have very different belief systems that think you're wrong. If there is no God... There is no evil. I finish with this quote from Friedrich Nietzsche, one of the most famous atheist philosophers of all time. When one gives up Christian belief, this is one of my favorite sentences ever by an atheist. When one gives up Christian belief, one thereby deprives oneself of the right to Christian morality. Is that not a brilliant statement? In other words, we enjoy, we enjoy a great society because of Christian morals. That's why. I mean, even though our society is moving away from it now, the reason we live in a good society, I mean, you find, go to a society like North Korea where they've totally eradicated, you know, Judeo-Christian values and see what it's like to live there or some of the other countries in this world. 
okay? And Friedrich Nietzsche saw that. He saw that Christian morals are actually a beautiful thing. But he said, if you give up Christian belief, you actually lose the right to have Christian morals. For the latter is not self-evident. Christianity is a system. If God does not exist, then everything is permitted. So you might not like Adolf Hitler, but that's just an opinion. Adolf Hitler liked it. If there is no God, then there is no evil. And that's why if an atheist tells me, I don't believe in God because of all the evil in the world, I say to the atheist, I don't believe in atheism because of all the evil in the world. See, atheism fails the test of evil. Atheism fails the test of evil. If there, and Jamie, if you could put, just put that up there in, in uh, writing. If atheism is true, then there is no such thing as evil, yet we all know there is something like evil. We all know it. We, we, we intuitively know that certain things are evil. The moment you say that there is evil, you are saying that there is a God. So what's our, our alternative? You say, I just can't believe in a God who would allow bad things to happen. Your alternative is pretty bleak. Your alternative is to pretend like there isn't even such a thing as evil, which is practically impossible. Let me take this one step further. What does atheism offer to a suffering person? What does atheism offer to you as a person who's suffering? You know, you, you, you say, I can't, I'm just so mad at God. Why would he let me go through this? What's the alternative to there being a good God who's letting you go through that? Let's imagine the, the situation of a parent losing a child because it's one of the worst things we can imagine, okay? But this would hold for anything of suffering. What does atheism offer to a parent who has lost a child? Well, here's what atheism offers you. You'll never see your child again. There is no purpose in your child's death. There's no purpose. I mean, there's no purpose in the universe. There's, there was no purpose in your child's life. Your child was just, you're just a bag of skin and bones, and the feelings you have in your head about your child are just random chemical reactions. Lastly, life and death are just random choice. That's what atheist offers to a suffering person. Is that better than believing in a God who's sovereign? What does Christianity offer to a person who's suffering? First of all, Christianity does not offer an easy answer. Why? You might want a why, but Christianity doesn't tell you why you have to suffer. But it does tell you some other things that give you hope so that you can suffer. First of all, the Bible tells us that you will see your child again. Number two, there was purpose in your child's death because God is sovereign. Number three, there is eternity coming and all this suffering and pain will be gone. You don't get all the answers to your whys, but at least you get hope for the future. Now, the atheist looks at these reasons and says, aha, these are just, these aren't logical arguments. These are emotional arguments. And you are absolutely correct. These are emotional arguments. And that's the whole point. The argument, I don't believe in God because of the presence of evil, is an emotional argument. And whether on a logical level or an emotional level, the fact of the matter is, God does exist. I can't and nobody can explain all the reasons why we have to go through pain. But the fact of the matter is, he is sovereign and he is in control, which brings up the second alternative. The first alternative to God being sovereign over evil he doesn't do evil. Humans do evil. Satan does evil. God doesn't. But he's sovereign on his throne. 
he permits it. And he only permits it in his time, and he stops it when he wants to stop it. But he doesn't stop it all. So why does he do that? What's another alternative? One alternative is there is no God. We've seen that isn't an alternative. The second alternative is where some Christian streams of Christian thought go more in some of the prosperity areas, even though lots of wonderful people there, well-meaning people there, but in some of that more theology, they would say that God isn't sovereign over bad things. They would say God doesn't want bad things to happen. The reason bad things happen is not because God wants them to happen or allows them to happen. It's because Christians don't have enough faith. Uh, you know, people aren't, you know, whatever it is. So you didn't have enough faith and that's why you got sick or you didn't have enough faith. That's why you didn't get healed. But God actually wants you to be healed. God actually doesn't want any bad things. That's not part of his plan. And to which I say, well, first of all, it's not biblical. But second of all, I mean, the whole book of Revelation is God is sovereign over these terrible things. But secondly, second of all, I can't imagine a more scary worldview other than outright atheism in terms of just scariness. If God isn't sovereign over bad things, and let's say I don't pray with enough faith in the morning in my devotions, does that mean my kids in a school bus could go off the road into a ditch and die and that wasn't part of God's plan? That's a scary thought. Now, when you know that God's sovereign, it doesn't change the fact that your kid, something, an accident could happen. But at least you know it's in God's plan. He can redeem it. He will redeem it. He's in control. But if God's not sovereign, that's a scary world to be going out there and finding. The book of Revelation encourages the first century Christians and us as Christians today. It says, yes, some terrible things are coming on the world. And yes, God is going to judge the world, but God is sovereign over it all. That is meant to be a massive encouragement to us. And we need to keep that in mind as we go through the book of Revelation. We might not know why, but God being sovereign is a very good thing. Instead of asking, why me? Some of us might need to start asking, why not me? If it's part of God's plan, then give me the strength, Lord, to go through what you have me going through. Well, back to Revelation and the trumpet judgments. The first angel blew his trumpet and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. And these were thrown upon the earth and a third of the earth was burned up and a third of the trees were burned up and all green grass was burned up. So here we have horrific storms, hail and lightning or, or whatever the, the fire there it could be lightning. It could be something else. Maybe, you know, things hurtling onto earth or whatever. Um, and then it says a third of the earth is burned up. And right away I think of, you know, massive, you know, kind of forest fires, things like that, you know, the last few years. We've seen all these terrible pictures, you know, out west and in California, these terrible, terrible uh, forest fires. And uh, I am not saying in any way, these are not Trumpet One, okay? I'm not saying Trumpet One is being blown right now, uh, anything like that. My point is what I said last week in the message. Revelation shows us patterns. Yes, you know, these trumpet judgments in the end, right before Jesus returns, are going to come down in the final, you know, satanic antichrist army and crush them. But these things are already happening. And Jesus is sovereign over them already now. And, um, and he's been doing them throughout history. And in fact, the first century church that was hearing this message, everywhere they looked, I was talking about this last week, I'm going to keep talking about it. Everywhere they, when, as they listened to the book of Revelation for the first time, they were seeing Rome the whole time. Rome was the Antichrist empire in their day. And when they're hearing these trumpet judgments, they are seeing this as God is going to judge the Roman Empire and bring it to its knees. And you know what? They were right. 
And God has done it to other empires since then, and God will do it in the end. He will bring all of these details together against one final empire. But these are things he's been doing already, and these are the kinds of things he used to bring the Roman Empire down. This last week, I've read a lot over the years about the Roman Empire. I just have a a fascination with history. And, uh, And I went back and looked up some stuff this week. Because, you know, in the past, uh, usually our our view of history tends to be uh, really simplistic. Um, We tend to view, you know, the rise and fall of empires purely in terms of military battles and no other factors. So, you know, when did this empire fall? Well, it fell when, you know, so-and-so beat so-and-so at such such a battle. And then that's when the empire fell. Well, yes, certainly military battles and war is part of the overall picture of how empires rise and fall. But there's so much else that goes into the rise and fall of an empire. Politics and demographics and even historians more and more now are looking at the role. It's just one role out of many. There's no one thing that that does it all. But they've been looking at the role of climate in the rise and fall of empires. It's interesting because these first four disasters in the trumpets are all natural events. Um, um, but if you look at the rise and fall of the Roman Empire, it's interesting. Um, from about 200 BC to about the mid-2nd century, it's about 350 years there, almost four centuries, where the Roman Empire was sort of at its kind of peak, its zenith. And interestingly enough, and there's many different reasons for that. There is no one reason for that. As you can see, God's sovereign over it all. But one of the things that coincides with that zenith of the Roman Empire is what historians call the, the, the optimal Roman climate. All around the Mediterranean, there was about four centuries where the climate was absolutely perfect for growing food. It was very stable, and it was warm and wet, and it allowed the Roman Empire to, to grow and grow like crazy. Again, you can see the sovereignty of God over all these events and have enough food for its population. And then in the mid-2nd century... That, uh, that, that, that stable climate that they'd had for four centuries uh, kind of went off its rocker and started a, a long decline over centuries that went so long they actually had, had what they now call a mini ice age. So by the way, climate change has been going on for millennia, okay? And I won't say anything more about that, okay? We'll just leave it there. There's been warming and cooling for many, many centuries already. But anyway, the, actually leading to a mini ice age. But anyway, it affected all kinds of things in the empire. And again, this isn't the only thing that affected the empire. There's just one piece of many things. You can see God's sovereignty over it all. But immediately, it affected food production. And one of the first things that began to happen is they started to get horrible plagues. In 165, speaking of natural disasters, in 165, the, the first massive plague uh, hit the Roman Empire, the Antonine Plague killed seven to eight million people, which is an absolutely catastrophic plague. But think back then when populations were much less. Devastating. And then in the third century, there was a mega drought, which led to another plague, which was the Cyprian Plague. This one at its height was killing 5,000 people per day, they estimate, in the, in the city of Rome alone. Okay? They actually, historians now refer to that particular plague as in kind of the first fall of Rome. Rome never really recovered from some of these things. Okay? Then in the 6th century, uh, the 500s, the 530s and the 540s, there was a, a massive surge of volcanoes around the world. Okay? Uh, so bad that in the year 536 AD, they, they had 15 uh, months where they talk of it as the sun didn't shine. I mean, it shone, but only very little. 
devastating on crops. Average global temperatures dropped two and a half or three degrees, which might not sound much on, an, you know, on, a, on a single day in a single place, but it's absolutely devastating. Literally, people around the world, 536 AD, were worried. They were wondering, what on earth is going on? And it was right at a time when the Roman Empire was looking to get a second golden age, totally stopped them in their tracks, and after that... Um, but you can see how the, 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 the climate uh, working in with many other factors, but you can see now when we read these trumpet judgments, and again, my point is not to say, hey, this historical event was this trumpet. That is not at all what I'm doing. I, I really believe these, ultimately these are going to be fulfilled, you know, right before Jesus returns when God crushes the final Antichrist uh, empire. But my point is there's been Antichrist empires all along. And God has been using these things all along. And you can see some of these things look just like what we're reading in the trumpets. Trumpet 4, right? Trumpet 4 says, um, The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Trumpet 2, The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. You can see here that God will use natural disasters to bring empires to their knees. He has done it many times before, and he will do it again. And by the way, if you think it's so easy for us to get up every morning, you know, you read these passages in the Bible, and it's so easy, you know, once you leave church and you, you know, you get your Timmy's coffee and you get your RSP statement in the mail, and it just feels like everything's trucking along like it always has, and it'll just keep going kind of forever. Let me just tell you something. No human empire lasts forever. It just doesn't. I'm not predicting, you know, I'm not saying we all need to get bunkers and canned food. I know that, that you know, that uh, rumor is out there about cell phone. I'm certainly not saying we should do that. I'm not predicting the end of the age right now. All I'm saying is, right now, work hard, be productive, buy and sell, and use the, the blessings that God gives us to advance his kingdom. But if your hope is in this world right now, boy, all of these things can come down. The Romans didn't, you know, none of these empires got up and started saying, hey, we're just about to end. They, these things can happen so quickly. Sometimes it takes longer, sometimes it takes shorter, but nothing lasts forever. Use the things we have now for God's glory. And then we finish with this. If we skip to the end of chapter 9, we'll get through the rest of chapter 9 next week. And it says this, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Now, I find this very interesting about the do not repent. They did not repent. Because usually I think when we read about these judgments, we just think, okay, here's God just, he's just smashing He's just smashing the bad guys. But have you ever stopped to think, why does he, why 21 judgments in Revelation? Like God doesn't need to do 21. He could do just one. Like one day he just says, that's it. I'm sick of it. Wham, over. Jesus kingdom on earth and God's people are happy, right? But that's not how he does it. He doesn't take one judgment and just go wham. So obviously there's a bigger purpose here than just judging the wicked. If he just wanted to judge them, he could bring an end right now. So why a series of judgments? Let's go back briefly and just talk about numbers for a second. You remember throughout the trumpet judgments, most of them have this number a third. You can go back and look it up in your Bibles this week. 
a third of the stars were struck. A third of the sea turned to blood. A third of the earth was burned up. Over and over again, a third. I don't think those numbers are meant to be scientific. I don't think the point is, you know, 33.3% of the ships affected or 33.3% of the fresh water affected. I don't think that's the point. It's interesting. If you look at the seal judgments, the first ones, a fourth, the number used there is a fourth. Then in the trumpets, it's a third. And then when you get to the bowl judgments, it's everything. What's the point that's going on here? The point is that the severity of the judgments is increasing. The first ones are bad. The second ones are really, really bad. And the third ones are awful, awful, awful. There's increasing. Why would God do increasing and increasing? Why do a series of judgments and do them increasing? Here's the reason. He's giving people time to repent. He's using these judgments to say to the earth, repent. Repent. He could just smash them in once. He doesn't want to smash them in once because he wants them to repent. So the point is, they're supposed to see these judgments, natural disasters and wars and various things, and they're supposed to look inwards and go, oh my goodness, and they're supposed to cry out to God and repent. But here, he indicts the nations, and he says, but they did not repent. When we get to the bold judgments, you're going to see this theme huge over and over again. Here's this bold judgment, and they did not repent. Here's this bold judgment, and they did not repent. Here's this bold judgment, and they did not repent. They didn't repent. The whole reason he's not doing it all in once is because he wants to give the nations time to repent. Now, some of you are sitting there and you're going, well, how on earth are they even supposed to think to repent? Like, nobody in a secular government nowadays would even think, like a natural disaster hits the country. And by the way, I'm not saying that every natural disaster is a judgment from God. Not at all. But as we see here in Revelation, it is appropriate for a country when natural disasters hit or when terrorism or war hit or economic crises, it is actually appropriate for a nation to look inward and to see, should we repent? That's actually appropriate because God is sovereign and he actually uses those events to bring the nations to himself. But you say, but wait a minute, no secular government would ever think to repent. If catastrophic natural events happen, you know, people are upset and maybe they're afraid, but nobody thinks to say, hey, let's have a national day of prayer and seek God and repent. Nobody thinks to do that. They're a secular government. So this isn't very effective, God. They won't even connect the dots. They won't connect the dots from natural disasters and economic crises and war. They won't connect the dots to, we need to repent. And you're right, they won't connect the dots. So you say, well, how does God expect people to repent then? How does God expect them to know that they should repent? And the answer is, that's why he leaves us here. That's why we are his witnesses. The church is his witness. We are his light. He is sovereignly in control of these events. And he leaves us on here. You say, why does God leave us on earth when this terrible stuff is happening? Because he loves the lost too much to leave them without a witness. And he says, I'm even willing for my, and he's going to do good things in our lives as a result too, but I'm willing to even let my children suffer so that the lost can know me. But we're the ones who are supposed to connect the dots. That's the church's job. It's the church's job to tell the world abortion is wrong. Repent. And not to do it with hate or anger, but to do it with love. Don't do it. This is wrong. 
It's the church's job to tell the world sexual immorality is wrong. We're supposed to be a prophetic voice, light and salt, to do it with love, to do it with charity, to do it with generosity. But if we don't tell them, they won't connect the dots. It's our job to tell the world greed is wrong. It's our job to connect the dots so that they can turn to Jesus and repent. So what do we do with this message? Two things, two very, very practical things. One thing is just, again, a reminder, this Friday we're going to pray, but we're going to pray for our nation. This is our, this is our job. This is what the church does. We actually love the lost too much not to pray and not to be a light. Even when they get mad at us for being a light and for being salt, we just love them even more. So this Friday, we're going to get together on Good Friday. We're going to take communion. We're going to love Jesus for his sacrifice on the cross. And we're going to pray for Canada. And we're going to pray for our government. And we're going to pray about abortion. We're going to pray about those things because that's what we do. That's what we do. And then secondly, we're going to just take a moment And we're just going to listen. It's our job to be a light. God is sovereign on his throne. The book of Revelation is not supposed to be scary for a believer. Here's what you need to know. You don't need to look in the newspapers and say, oh my goodness, is it almost about to hit? Is it almost about to hit? You don't need to do that. You can just totally trust that he is in control. Your job is not to worry about the when and the how. Your job is to be a light so that the nations can connect the dots and repent. So what's one thing this week? A number of you are going to have family gatherings this week. Next weekend is Easter. This Friday is Good Friday. You're going to have some gatherings and stuff. What's a practical idea? What's God saying to you this week? What's a little thing you can do to be a light to lost co-workers or lost family members? I want you just to bow your heads with me and close your eyes. And let's just take a moment to think and to pray. Lord Jesus, I just want to worship you. You are in control You are sovereign, and actually, I'm so happy for it. We don't know all the reasons why we have to go through difficult things, but we can worship you knowing that things are not out of your control. And Lord, this week, we're going to have gatherings. We're going to be in contact with people at work or in our families who do not know you. And we we don't want to be unsubtle. We don't want to be stupid. We don't want to be ignorant. But Lord, we want to be a light. We want to show your love. Is there a practical thing? Can you imagine if each one of us had a practical thing we're going to do this week to be a light? What would happen in this community leading up to Easter if each of us had a practical thing? We're going to go forth and be a light to the lost, a light of Jesus' love and truth. Lord, even in the silence here, I pray that you would speak to us. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness. Help us to be a light, an effective light this week to our families and to our friends. I pray that no one in here would go home with fear because of the book of Revelation, but rather we would be more firmly encouraged than ever before that you are on the throne and you are in control. We praise your name in Jesus' name. Amen.